1: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 354. And today on the show, I'm joined by meat eater, wild foods contributing editor, Daniel Pruitt, to discuss everything you need to know to make this your very best summer of wild game cookouts. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today on the show, I'm joined by Danielle Pruitt. She's a contributing editor over at Meat Eater and the founder of Wild and Whole, a dedicated website to cooking and eating wild game. You might have heard her on the podcast I don't know, about half a year ago during the holiday time period. She's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to cooking, preparing and eating venison and other wild game. And I thought with summer officially kicked off now, it was time to talk summer cookout. So I wanted to pick Danielle's brain on all sorts of topics and ideas related to cooking outside and eating great wild game that's that's kind of fitting for this time of year and this season. So, we cover all your favorite summer food ideas, everything from grilling the perfect venison steak or burger to Mexican night ideas, to thoughts on barbecues and marinades and rubs and even sloppy joes, just all sorts of great summer eating. So, If you've got a freezer full of wild game and an outdoor space to enjoy it, whether that's a deck, a boat, or a campsite, this is the podcast for you. So, without further ado, let's get into it. All right, with me now on the line is Danielle Pruitt. Welcome back to the show, Danielle. Hey, Mark. It's it's good to get to chat with you again. Last time we talked, it was just before christmas i think right in that right in that time frame so everyone's thinking holiday foods and now Mm -hmm. we're talking just before summer and everyone's thinking summer foods so it seemed like a really good time to to connect with you again (laughs) i'm getting hungry thinking about the summertime
2: i know it's it seems like this is the time of the year just everybody knows that memorial day is coming up and it's just like it's official summer is here and I'm going to, since everybody's quarantined at home and we're all sick of dishes, like what better time to just crack that grill open or fire and, and cook outside. Yes, Stop yes. with the messes in the kitchen.
1: <laughs> Agreed. I am very sick of dishes. I've been doing a whole lot of those and I'm I'm excited for some outdoor eating and still dishes, but for some reason it'll feel better. Uh so you said you said Memorial Day, which when we're recording this, it's just a couple days, I don't know, four days before Memorial Day, something like that. Um mm-hmm. I don't know what we're eating yet, but do you? Do you know what's on the Memorial Day menu?
2: No, mostly because it's going to be pouring down rain mm. in Houston, which makes kind of a it kind of rains on the parade a little bit of the old outdoor get outside stuff. But yeah. um no. You know that's that's a good like thing like what am I cooking this weekend I get so wrapped up in what I'm cooking for for meat eater or for work or content wise and then my husband's like that all sounds great. So like, what are we eating now? And I'm like, oh, I have no idea, <laughs>
1: <laughs> so,
2: no idea, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> yeah,
1: so do you guys eat as good at home as you make food for the website or do, does your husband get stuck with uh, leftovers and <laughs> the good stuff just gets made for the camera?
2: <laughs> well, now that he's working from home, he gets to eat pretty pretty darn good. Um, Cause most of the stuff I, I do, I do it in the middle of the daytime. Um, and so when he was working in the office, he had to miss out on that and had to eat leftovers. And so now he gets to be a part of everything. Um, but like for instance, yesterday I, I made some Neapolitan pizzas, Neapolitan style pizzas. Nice. And I've been doing a little foraging and I had a handful of chanterelles. And so I did like a pizza Bianca with all those mushrooms and it was so good. It was so good. I'm like, I rarely make pizzas, but that was that was memorable, yeah,
1: that sounds so that's the that kind, sounds kind of stuff good. we
2: eat <laughs> pretty normal.
1: do you guys eat different when you're at your ranch because you're 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 at your ranch right now, right? in Texas yeah, yeah. Is, is there like a certain mm-hmm. when you guys are there, do you have like any kind of I don't know like when I go certain places, like okay, this is the kind of place I'm always gonna grill out? Do you have something that, like, when you're here, it's this kind of food that just seems to fit the location?
2: Yeah, yeah. So my ranch is an hour away. And I'll just give you a quick backstory. I think it's a very cool place. It's my husband's uh, family ranch. A guy named Wint Winthal, right after World War I, bought this property. And he got married, had one girl... And so the ranch passed to her and she married Travis's grandfather. And so that's kind of how it got into the Pruitt family because because um, so this, this property, the original house is still here and we've kind of built an add on around the original house. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really a cool place because there are pictures. I mean, gosh, that's like getting around a hundred years old. Yeah. Um, this this area and so there's pictures like you can see of parts of the ranch where you know they were practically homesteading um I mean not homesteading but you know what you did in 1930s (laughs) you lift off the land um you know it's just it's really cool like the garden space that I have my garden in now has been gardened by the family for like a hundred years and And so like the raspberry, we have dewberries, not raspberries, we have dewberries out here. And so like every time I like pick or forge or or do anything out here, I just think like how much family history is is out here. And this part of the state of Texas is particularly known for um, watermelon and okra, especially now that summer is approaching. And there's a farmer's market down the road that I just adore because this is like the farmer's market where you you know it's all open air and you go in and they have popcorn machines filled with chicharrones (laughs) it's just like it's such a unique little place they don't have those up by me (laughs) and the barbecue joint is down the road and and, like, I'll, I say we're known for the watermelons here because when we lived in North Dakota, one time I was at the grocery store and I saw a Diario's Watermelon. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This is from Hempstead, Texas? You're kidding me. So whenever we come out here, like, we really kind of play into some sort of, the, like, the southern comfort foods. Like, we grill okra pretty much every single time. Um, my husband could eat okra all day, every day. Um, and pickled things like, you know, just sort of really simple, simple foods, nothing, nothing fancy, but kind of like a Southern twist to everything.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. It sounds pretty good. Um, yeah. Do you find kind of similar to how you have some things that come to mind for a location when you go out to the ranch, those, some of those types of foods sound particularly good or they're local for you. Do you have the same thing at all with the season? So when it comes to this time of year, when Memorial Day yeah. hits and summer arrives, are there some things that all of a sudden, like this is going to be on the Pruitt menu for the next couple months? There's like some summer mainstays. What are those for you guys?
2: Yeah, I mean, so for me, like here in Texas, the zone that we're in, like I kind of, okay, Let me let me back up for a second. I think it's really important to eat seasonally, mostly because the food is, you know, from a cook perspective, the food is just 10 times better. If you've ever tried to eat a tomato in the middle of winter, it's terrible. Like it's just terrible. I don't, it's just not good. And so like, you know, when summer comes around, it's fantastic. So I always try to eat whatever is ripe either at the grocery store, or at the farmer's market, because everything just tastes so much better that way. But, um, this time of the year here, what's ripe for me is probably definitely not in season for you now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so like, it's kind of weird. Like when I tell people, Oh, I'm already finding chanterelles and my tomatoes are one of them is already turning orange. It's all starting to ripen. And other people are like, I still have snow on the ground. How right.
1: It's not possible. <laughs> are um, around it.
2: So like I'm in a complete, a little bit of a different like setting just because of location, but yeah, this time of the year is when I I think about, well, while it's hot. What's really refreshing and easy to cook? And, you know, the, obviously there's a lot of grilling outside, but I use a lot of fresh ingredients and um, serve them cold on the side. So, like, my favorite is, like, a steak with, like, a either not even, like, a backstrap steak, but and any kind of tender cut of meat from a from a deer um, and serve it with like a cold chimichurri sauce or some sort of like pickled relish. Anything that's kind of cold, acidic, just naturally, or acidity pairs really well with wild game that I find. Mm-hmm. But something that's kind of cooling because it's already in the 90s here. And so I'm like really ready to just cook outside and not have an oven or anything going in the, inside the house yeah which by the way this ranch house has no ac <laughs> <That's> <laughs> as, as i'm saying this i'm like god that sounds really good i need a fan in here
1: <laughs> yeah i complain we don't have ac at my house but that's in michigan it's much less uh <laughs> uncomfortable than i'm sure no ac in texas is <laughs>
2: <laughs> well i mean there is an ac but when i come out here for the day it's just me there's I've, i don't turn it on it's We only turn it on if we're planning on being here for a whole weekend or
1: something. Yeah. You know, something Uh, I got to wondering, you mentioned how, you know, there's certain types of foods that taste best fresh. You want to eat, you know, mm -hmm. for the season, ripeness like that. And like tomatoes are best, you know, right off the vine maybe. But it's kind of funny with wild game with venison. A lot of the time we're eating it, you know, months later. Have you looked into it all? Like when the very best like what's the sweet spot for how long you should wait to eat venison like there's some that will eat it right away which has got a certain specialness to it but then there's questions about like freezer aging your meat and how long it's in there is it is it great at six months is it better i've heard Wait a minute that's a thing freezer
2: aging
1: i don't know what well, i am not the person to ask that question <laughs> but i've heard people use that term before I've heard people say. I've never
2: heard of that in yeah, my life.
1: I've heard some and people say. I,
2: I need to Google this.
1: <laughs> look into it. Look into it. Someone has told Coke, me. What
2: kind cook am I? I
1: don't know has, about
2: this. Um,
1: yeah, like a year you know, later. I,
2: I understand like aging in the terms of when an animal dies, you know, you've got the rigor mortis. I have a hard time saying that for whatever reason. Sounds right. You've got that going on and the muscles stiffen up. And so when you let it... Um, Hang or age; those enzymes that are still present in those muscles will continue to break down tissue, even after the animal is dead. And so, it, after after that stiffness lets go, you know, like a day or two later, then the muscles relax, and those those enzymes continue to sort of digest that protein. And that's what aging really is. It's it's doing two things. It's It's um, tenderizing and also because it's in a dry environment with airflow, it is um, sort of dehydrating in a sense so that you're concentrating those flavors. And so it's a a more bolder, meatier, savory, and tender flavor. And, you know, I used to get real wrapped up in that kind of stuff and I kind of uh, veered away with it. Just because I eat so much wild game that I don't know if like I don't have the time for it, I do age in the fridge. you can do it in um, like a oh what do you call it like a wet aging like what I just described is uh, known as dry aging. you can do a wet aging, which is vacuum sealing, but I've had both good results and also bad results with that um And so I'm kind of, I guess the more and more I cook wild game, which has been living solely off wild game for seven years now, I kind of try a lot of things and I go back and forth and I'm way less rigid these days when it comes to stuff like that. And I don't, I don't get too wrapped up in how that's all, is it aged? And I think it's fun to do if you have the setup and you have the time and you're, you're really investing into it, then it's great. But if you don't, like, you're not, you know, you're not missing out on the whole world. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's not going not to ruin the meat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, what um, about the opposite? But I
2: don't know anything about freezer aging.
1: I was going to say, what about, what's like the longest it can go in the freezer before you wouldn't want to eat it? You know, I, I've I've heard some people say, ah, oh, you know, I was digging around the freezer. I found this package here at the bottom that's from four years ago. What should I do with it? Can I still eat it? What are, What are your thoughts on that?
2: That's a really good question because I just took out a package of goose breast from 2017. Test it out. <laughs> <laughs> they were vac sealed, and like the, the problem is you have to ask yourself how much fat is on that animal. If you're talking about a deer, there's way more leniency because there's not the same type of fat like you would find on bear meat or like a fatty duck or goose, because the fat is really what goes rancid the fastest. So when I defrosted that bag, it smelled pretty, pretty bad, (laughs) Um, but not too terrible. And I've kind of gotten to a point because I've, I've dealt with freezer burnt meat so many times. Sometimes I have to throw it away, which is just makes me want to cry. And I tell myself, Danielle, stop letting meat sit in the freezer for that long. Shame on me. Um, But I've also kind of like figured out that if you have like a really good boning or filet knife, you can um, take a thin slice off the top. And usually you can kind of solve the problem that way. Yeah. And then, and then my other suggestion is cooking it in something like really really bold in flavors, so like with that goose, I made gumbo with it, and you couldn't tell at all. I actually had friends over for dinner, and I was terrified. was <laughs> serving them frostbitten goose. I was like, what am i why am I serving this to them?" And they had no idea; they thought it was awesome.
3: That's great. Um,
2: so there is a limit um I would say for deer. I don't like going more than two years. I think two years is definitely, I mean, I think it depends on how, how how much game you have. If you're hunting every year for a variety of species or more than one deer, you know, you should really try to clean, clean it out before the next season rolls around because it's just going to sit in there even longer. Like when, when do you actually get to it? You know?
3: Yeah.
1: I'm usually about a year and a half rotation I would say so I'm eating yeah I feel like I'm eating a lot of venison right now that was killed in two in the 2018 season I'm eating a lot of that stuff right now so by the time hunting season comes around I will be getting probably done with that and i'll be eating my 2019 deer probably by this fall so usually a year year and a half is what i'm behind i would say and that's that's been fine for me i'd say most of my stuff you know if it might be a little bit of freezer burn like you mentioned um you just trim that off and then it's great from what i found
2: do you vac seal or do you use paper
1: so i used to vac seal um but i have a lot of those bags like fail on me so i'll pull out a, a yeah. vac seal bag and it's it's not sealed you know tight anymore and so then there's these gaps that then allow that mm-hmm. freezer freezer burn to to start so my just saran wrap and paper just seems to be a while it's a little bit more work i guess on the front end maybe it just seems to be more consistent and maybe that's my vacuum sealer that could be like a error in how i'm doing it or the the equipment or something but for whatever reason, that's what I've found. What what about you?
2: Yeah, I've had the same same exact issues. I still use the vac sealer. Um because when it works, then you've got like a year more of life. <laughs> when it doesn't work, um, you notice immediately, you know, like once the meat's frozen, like it doesn't take but a month or so that you can see if there's frost in that package, yeah, then you know something's wrong and get it, you know, defrosted. Don't like bury it at the bottom of the freezer, and that's kind of the way I I treat it. You know, I I have this bad habit of of wanting to savor my meat. Like, um, oh, I found some sandhill crane breast that we're gonna have tonight for dinner. That was shot two seasons ago, and like I have been ever I see it all the time, and I'm like, we should have that. And I'm like, no, let's save that for something special. And then <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden. You like, you take it out and you're like, oh, actually, <laughs> it's not special anymore. It's a little off. Um, I'm, just, I'm the worst about doing that. And I think part of it, I read somebody said this, and I think they kind of hit the nail on the head. When you finish off like the last package of meat, it's like you finish the hunt. Like, <laughs> it makes me a little sad.
1: <laughs> it's an interesting one. I like that. Do
2: you have that?
1: You know, I I think there's something to be said about that, yes. When that last – because every time I eat, I know what deer it was. And I will always think of that deer. I'll think of that hunt. I'll think of that moment. And so, yeah, you're right. Like, I know that when the last package, which I'm getting very close to it, of the buck I killed in Michigan a couple of years ago, uh, that was a real special one, that, that'll that be uh, – a. A weird ending, which is yeah an interesting way to think about it.
2: Yeah,
1: good food though. But At least it'll go out with it on a high note. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Speaking of speaking of that, and what you mentioned a, a little bit ago, you talked about how you know one of those go to summer meals is grilling something and then having like a cold side, like a chimichurri sauce or or something along those lines. Um, I feel like I just want to get from you. What we absolutely have to know about grilling better venison steaks. Because last time we talked, we talked about backstraps. But I think Mm -hmm. we mostly talked, you know, a cast iron stove kind of thing. But if we're outside cooking on the deck or the patio or whatever, um, let's talk about outdoor cooking on the grill with – venison, various cuts, whatever. Um, can you run through a few common mistakes or a few things that we should definitely be doing to make sure it's as good as possible? Um, give me like the high level masterclass on becoming a great griller.
2: (laughs) Um, I feel like I'm still learning how to grill. That sounds, I shouldn't probably have said that. (laughs) I feel like I'm still learning how to cook too, but, um, always be learning. It just, yeah absolutely. I think there's kind of this i i I used to go back and forth, you know you always hear pull your meat from the fridge early and and get your grill hot and like what is early? Is it ten minutes is it fifteen right you know I used to be like, Well, ten minutes is pretty good, but it's actually not it's still pretty cold and I used to let like, let it rest for or pull it like at least thirty minutes early, and I noticed that definitely made for more even cooking. But if you're the kind of person that that like has this tendency of overcooking, I know so many people that cook it cold because they're like, "Well, I'm not going to overcook it because I'm right. cooking it cold." Um, and I'm like, "Well, you know, there's there's some truth to that, but you definitely get a little bit of that." Um, black and blue sort of thing, which a lot of people like.
1: What does that mean for people that don't know?
2: Black and blue. Am I saying that? Is that the right term? No, I or think what, that's... Is, what is it? Is it the Chicago or there's a Detroit style, Pittsburgh style. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs>
1: beats, beats me. I'll you know take your I'm word. I'll <laughs> take your word for it. I'm assuming you mean like really cold <laughs> still it's on the,
2: the inside. It's like where the outside is like super charred. And then it's still um like a, like rare in the middle, yeah, yeah, cool and rare in the middle, but the outside's really char, and that's because it's cold, cooked cold, um, I hate the char on the outside, I think it just overpowers the flavor so much. I mean, I want a little bit, but but that particular style is just way too much, and so when you really think about that you have to take two things into consideration. How early are you pulling? Meaning like how cold is your meat versus how hot is your fire? The hotter your fire is, the more the outside's going to cook. So if you want like a blazing hot fire, you better pull that meat really, really early, if that makes sense. So it's not so cold in the middle. Otherwise you get it like blackened on the outside and cold in the middle, which is a really common mistake. Um, but I think having the patience to, if you're going to cook over wood or coals, letting it burn down, um, is really important because you always like misjudge how hot a fire really is until you put food on it and you're like, Oh crap. Um, that's one mistake that I see often, um, when grilling, But, I mean, I really, I really think about it the same way that I think about any, any other type of, any other way that I would cook a steak is, is you just don't overcook it. (laughs) Um, You know, like, you you throw it on the grill hot and fast because it's so lean. There's really no fat compared to, like, a, a beef steak. And so, it doesn't take very long. It gets It gets cooked really fast and that's why I like to pull it early, at least 30 minutes from the fridge so that you don't end up with an overly charred outside and cold middle um, unless it's what you want.
0: Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
1: We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I was going to ask you if you put any fat on the outside. I know some people will coat the steak in like olive oil or something before grilling it.
2: Um, yeah, I do that.
1: You do. Okay.
2: I do. I do like grapeseed, canola or avocado oil. For, well, first I season it with salt and pepper, salt and pepper way in advance. Um, like early that morning or the night before, if, if I happen to remember, and then I pull it from the fridge and then kind of like pat it dry and then put oil all over it. Yeah. And that's another good point. Like when it comes to like, say, just if all you want to do is salt and pepper your steak. I think, I think that's a great idea because I mean, as, as the purest wild game eaters would, would want to believe is like, that's all a good steak needs because it, the meat tastes really good if you took care of it in the field. And I totally agree. But one thing people don't really consider as much is the type of salt and the type of pepper because texture really, really matters. And I have gone to the extreme on this. Um, if you've got like a sea salt or like a black pepper, like cruncher, you know, yep. those are pretty good because then you, you've you got some texture on there, I, I can't stand when those like little tens of um, black pepper, yep. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? The big, big chunks. So like, yeah, I hate those. I hate those. I've gone kind of extreme lately with all of my steaks. Now I, um, I use a sea salt or a um, kind of a flaky salt, anything that's kind of like a crunchy textural salt, because you can actually just, it just totally changes the meat when you have that texture from the salt. But in addition, I buy peppercorns in bulk. Like I'll just buy like a bag of them and I'd stick them in like a little, like a tablespoon worth, in a mortar and pestle, and I hand hand mash all my peppercorns now to rub on my steak because it's so. The texture is just phenomenally better. I don't. I just. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm going a little overboard and extreme with it. But if you're going to just do a salt and pepper for the sake of doing a salt and pepper, like having that texture, really changes it to something significantly better
1: interesting i I, I get where yeah it does (laughs) make sense i totally get where you mean because i have done we we do sometimes have like a sea salt which is like a a larger flake i guess and i have noticed like Mm -hmm. ooh that is a nice little extra crunch of sorts different different texture now what about the next step from that which is applying something on the outside like rubs do you what are your thoughts on putting rubs on a big piece of meat or a steak or something like that for grilling is that is that an idea that you ever look at
2: um yes i mean if it's a steak so this is like um so here's one example um, it's basically a rub, even though I'm just making a salt and pepper steak, I'll do the same thing. I was just telling you about, um, grind hand mashing those peppercorns. And then I have a big herb garden and I'll snip a thing of rosemary and then take, um, garlic and mince it and mince the rosemary and then add the salt. And so I've got all three of those things just sort of getting mashed up in that mortar and pestle. And when you're done with it, you've got this like really granule rub basically like a garlic and herb rub and that's kind of like as far as I take a steak usually. Um sometimes depending on what type of steak like if it's uh the inside round steak which is actually a phenomenal steak as as is the sirloin tip which a lot of people never even think to cut it like a steak but I do it all the time. Um, those I kind of do with the, what I call like the cowboy steak. Um, maybe that's just a Texas thing. Um, but that's salt, pepper, a little cayenne and brown sugar. And let me tell you that brown sugar caramelizes on the grill. Like, oh, it's, it's my yeah. like secret to any kind of rub. Add just a pinch of brown sugar and you just get this like really nice flavor on the grill.
1: I like that idea a lot. Speaking of these texts, yeah. these uh, these steaks. If you're cutting your own steaks, what's the ideal mm-hmm. thickness in your mind?
2: Oh, I don't know. I play around with that all the time. When it comes to a backstrap, I do not like the butterfly me- method. Um, I just think they overcook way too fast for what it is, and so I usually cut those like cut the like the loin out in in intervals of like four, six inches long. And then other pieces like the inside round, which that cut is kind of like a, which it's like a big rectangle, and so and so most people kind of do cutlets out of it. And just recently, I decided instead that I would cut it lengthwise, or wait, I would cut crosswise instead of cutting a whole bunch of steaks down the whole thing. I cut it through the middle, lengthwise or crosswise. Does that make sense?
3: Yep, I
1: follow. It's
2: two wide flat pieces, and then I took those wide flat pieces and pounded them out flat. And that's the closest to kind of a kind of a like texture because it has a really strong grain line. And then you pound it out thin. I mean, I say thin. I mean, like maybe an inch that they're like an inch or two and then you grill it as one whole piece and you can apply whatever kind of rub you want on it whether it's like a steak rub a cajun or a whatever you want um, and then when it's done when you go to cut it you uh, take the knife at a 45 degree angle so you get these um long strips and the 45 degree angle so that you get like more surface area of meat versus just cutting it straight down, if that makes sense. I do. That's a yeah. new thing that I've been doing lately, and it kind of gives you like that fajita-like briskety fill, like like strips of meat, but it's such a tender cut that, um, and it's really good for like um, putting in tacos or on sandwiches, stuff like that. But um, that's yeah. kind of a new thing I've been doing. But but most of the time, I like, if I want a steak, I want like a big, thick steak. <laughs> yeah.
1: Inch, two inches, something like that?
2: Yeah. Yeah, at least. Yeah, I would say.
1: Now, okay. So, I don't know,
2: I just like to feel like I'm biting into something.
1: Yeah, I hear you on that one. Uh, and then also, I feel like, you just get at least in the past when I've had processors do my meat, and you get those back. They mm. cut those steaks so thin, and it's just so easy to overcook really them. Do. It's lousy. Mm-hmm. So that is a beautiful thing of processing your own meat is to be able to get those cuts just the way you want them, and uh, allow for that thicker, better piece of better bite, better uh, yeah, you know, easier to cook with. But um, so there's the salt and pepper method that you talked about. There's some rub ideas. I like to rub ideas. The third way that I could see people thinking about steaks or, or working with wild game in the summer would be marinades. A lot of people talk about using marinades. I know you just did a whole big rundown for the meat eater website about your thoughts on you know why, when, and how to use wild game marinades. And I want to kind of hear your thoughts on that. Especially in regards to venison, but, but everything too. What's, what's your take there and how should we be thinking about marinades?
2: You know, like I don't, I think maybe this is just the way people are, but it seems like people just like, like they're just a, like really all for something or they're really all against it. And I don't really find, I mean, I've been on both sides. When I very first started cooking wild game, I was like, well, this is supposed to be gamey. Let's put it in a marinade. And then after I like really got into it, I'm like, this is too good for that. I would never use a marinade. How dare you? Right. And now I'm like a little more equilibrium in realizing that there is a time and a place where I think marinades are really helpful. I don't, I don't really love them on my steak. It's not how I would choose to eat a steak, but there are a lot of other cuts that could benefit from having a marinade. Um, if you have like a lesser, like if you have, say like the sirloin tip or like, or some sort of cut, like the tri tip or something that, that's sort of tender, but it's, you know, not a tenderloin or anything. Those do well under a marinade or game birds, like turkey, Pheasant, all those kind of things. I love marinating those meats, and I I really like to think as a marinade primarily being used to add flavor, and and not so much as a tenderizer. I think people kind of get back and forth about whether or not it tenderizes, and science has proven that a marinade can really only like permeate a meat about an eighth of an inch. So if you've got like a huge chunk of meat. You're not really doing much for it, but a marinade usually contains some sort of salt, and salt can do amazing things for meat. Um, it helps it stay like really juicy whenever you cook it, like kind of like a brine, the way you brine a turkey. Um, and so that's like a positive thing of using marinades is you get to eat like a very juicy, flavorful meat. And if you're eating you know, salt and pepper steaks all the time. It can get a little boring like having something different is is nice i like that for a change and i think some some cuts really benefit from that like um a heart you know a lot of people have a hard time eating it in general and a lot of people think that there's a real irony taste to it or you know it's it's a stronger flavored yes, meat unique. and i think marinating it can really, really be a great thing for things like that. Um, So I I, I like marinades. I use them like um, whole shoulders, like whole big cuts uh, that I plan to cook later on. Like I'll marinate it in some sort of rub or not a rub, like a paste or like some sort of liquid. And then I'll actually cook it in that liquid. Like that's a new way. I think when people think of marinades, they automatically assume like a a kebab on the grill or something like that. But there's like some other traditions where they'll take meat, soak it in like a vinegary marinade, and then when they take it out, they just boil it inside that marinade. Which is a actually a fantastic way of cooking really tough cuts. So that's something I started doing a lot with like the shoulders and and just really tough cuts of meat is marinating it and then throwing it in the crock pot and cooking it in the marinade. <laughs> it's like you couldn't really get, make it easier. <laughs>
1: yeah. When you're doing something like that or whatever you're marinating, how long do you have to let it marinate for?
2: You know, if, like I was saying, there's really – since it can't, like, go very deep into the meat, like, ha- marinating for days isn't really a great idea. I did a, a marinade recently for – for a tri-tip it's like lemon juice rosemary garlic and oil and it's a really good summer marinade for grilling and i i'll do steaks that way sometimes but i forgot about it like we so like i was gonna cook it and then we we've got a trap out here at the ranch and we've trapped a bunch of pigs and then i was like oh crap we need to go out there and take care of that and then like two days later i came back and i was like oh yeah I forgot about the steaks we were going to cook, and I took it out on the marinade, and the meat was just gray. The inside was fine, but once I cooked it, it was like just eating it looked very unappealing because that lemon juice and that acid had just changed the outside. So I think there's definitely a limit on how long is too long. I think two days is too long. Um, but if you're just trying to add flavor to it, you know, anywhere from four, eight, 12 hours window is is good so if you do it the night before you plan to cook i think that's a perfectly good amount of time
1: okay what are some of your go-to marinades i know uh you you published a venison kebab venison kebab recipe recently and you mentioned one in there that Mm -hmm. you like a lot what are those what's that look like
2: um let's see i my go-to's are kind of like so what do I want to eat today? And sometimes in my head I like take a little trip around the world. I'm like, oh, Mediterranean sounds really awesome. And so if you have turkey, having some sort of like Greek yogurt or like something like that um, in your marinade, like totally changes uh, the flavor profile. Or um, buttermilk. Like I have a quail recipe that's just buttermilk and. I don't even remember what I was in it. Probably a bunch of herbs and garlic. Um, but when it comes to steak and venison, I don't really like to get anything too crazy or too um, too bold. I really just keep it to sort of the same category of something acidic, whether it's a red wine vinegar or a lemon juice, and then some fresh herbs. Rosemary and thyme are usually my favorites. And then garlic. Um, those are kind of my, like, the things that I always add in the marinade. And then, of course, either salt. So I think the kebab recipe uses soy so- soy sauce. Um, but most of the time, I'll just add just sea salt or something. And then, like I was saying before, sugar. <laughs> I think sugar helps balance out, like, how, like, puckery it tastes. But once it hits that grill, you totally notice whether or not there was sugar because it gives you that like caramelized flavor.
3: Yeah.
2: Oh, I have one more.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, Tex-Mex. That's something that I eat like on a weekly basis just because it's it's been ingrained into my culture and since I was born, it's just, I eat Tex-Mex. It's a huge part of my life, which for me, that is just always equal parts. Lemon juice, orange juice, Garlic, sometimes onion, oregano, cumin, salt, pepper, chilies, cilantro. That's the recipe online. <laughs> yeah. So, what
1: kind of what kind of meal would you plan with that kind of marinade or that kind of set of like a, of spices? Like a,
2: like a Mexican-y kind of flavor. Yep. Um, the heart is a really good one because it's so tender. You can uh, slice a heart, then marinate it, and then cook it like that. Um, I always recommend people who are eating heart for the first time to try the fajita marinade and put it in a taco or something. Um, I just think it's a more approachable way to eat a heart. Uh, But I use it, like I was saying, like if you have like a tender top round or something like that, that anything like with a strong grain line of the meat will make a really good fajita or steak meat. And then it's really versatile for turkeys or any other white meat too. It, it it works kind of across the board. It just depends on what cut you're using on a deer, like how tough it is. Because you don't really want to grill a tough cut. <laughs> right,
1: right. You got me thinking though, as you mentioned this Tex-Mex marinade, what are, what are some other things we can be thinking about as far as summer Mexican Tex-Mex kind of themed um, meals with our venison or other wild game for this, this time of year because I I mean I eat a lot of Mexican food all through the year but especially summer it seems like such a great thing to eat outside or out in the boat or wherever. Yeah. Um, you mentioned fajitas. That's a, that's an easy one to, to tackle. But do you have any tips on either how to make your fajitas better or or anything else that's a little bit outside of the ordinary?
2: You know, fajitas are hard because the cut of meat is so important. You know, like when you go get a fajita at a steakhouse or not a steakhouse at like a at a restaurant, you know you're eating a skirt or a flank steak, which is a really thin, flappy cut of meat um, and then they cut it against the grain line when they when they cook it and it's just cooked really hot and fast and I've tried tried doing that with deer before. I've never had a deer big enough where the flank was was big enough to cook, and by the time I got the silver skin off, I was left with like. This pancake, yes. <laughs> like this tiny thing, and I was like, "That looks so like misshapen and weird." And I was like, "This isn't gonna work." Um, just grind it. <laughs> um, and then I've I've tried brisket, which works very well if you get all the silver skin off, which is a fair. It's a project, and I I do it every now and then. And every time I do it, I'm like, oh, "That's really." That's really a lot of work, but you get the closest result to like the actual cut of meat that you would get at the steakhouse. And then just recently, like I was saying with that inside round or like, like the, what you would get a hand steak out of from a deer, that piece um, cut, cr- cut down, cut through the middle long ways to get two wide rectangles that is probably the closest way of creating the same texture of meat. Um, So I think the kind of meat is really the most important, but if you didn't want to do like fajitas, if you wanted to do something else, um, let me think.
1: What else do I do? Do you ever do tamales?
2: You know, I used to work at a, in the cooking classes at Sarlatab, and we used to do those a lot. And I just never, I never carried that on, and I never do that at home. Mostly because, like, the community and the culture where I live, there's a strong, strong Hispanic influence. And those women who make tamales for like a dollar are just so freaking good at it. And I'm like, why would I? Just, why would I compete with it? When I can go and get these tamales from these women who've been doing it from their grandmother and their grandmother, you know, like yeah. passed down from generation. Like it's just so hard to like, when you have something like that, I'm like, and the same thing with tortillas, you know, I feel the same way when I can get these homemade tortillas down the street. I'm like, they're just so much better than what I can do.
1: Yeah. I'm very jealous. I'm,
2: that.
1: I'm very jealous <laughs> about that right now. When we we're, uh, we're yeah. on this Mexican uh, coos deer hunt, uh i guess it was oh yeah almost two a year and a half ago or so and so we were having fresh homemade tortillas every day and we made tamales with someone down there who helped us do it the right way and and golly we brought some of those home and that was great but there's no way i could replicate it so
2: well the thing about it is like you know like the way you make it you don't just make a few tamales. You make like a hundred tamales. Right. You know, like you don't just do small batches because it just requires a lot of work. So you just do a ton of it. And then I'm also like, what am I going to do with all these tamales? Who's going to eat these? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, no, those are, you know, like I, there's part of me that wants to cook everything. And then there's, there's the side of me that realizes that, There are some people who are just so good at it and like when I taste their food like I I just allow myself to just enjoy and respect what they do and I don't feel like the pressure to try to replicate it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So if somebody was visiting your house or Mm -hmm. maybe maybe I came down to the ranch and you know, was a- eating some of the things that you cook. What would be the thing that I or a visiting cook would say, oh, there's no way I should try cooking that at home because that's Danielle's thing. She's just so good at that. What's your, what's <laughs> that specialty that no one could could compare with?
2: I don't know if I have that. <laughs>
1: oh, come on. Don't be too modest. I
2: don't <laughs> You've
1: got to have that home run that you just know is going to be um, great every time that people want. You
2: know, a lot of my friends know me as, like, the girl who cooks duck and geese. I, do, I, just, I think I just have cooked it so many times that people just always want me to cook snow, steakhouse goose. That's kind of one of my specialties, although I don't think it's that challenging because I use a sous vide, so it's, like, cheating. Um, but people people love, love that one. Um, and then what else do I do? I would say I I do Tex-Mex really well. I would say if you came over, I would have fresh salsa, a a good roasted salsa, or like a roasted corn and poblano salsa, or like a fresh pico de gallo. I'm like one of those people who believes that you should have a smorgasbord of stuff. Like I will definitely have guacamole, and I will definitely have either a verde sauce or a roasted tomato sauce salsa, and then probably a fresh, cold pico de gallo or, or some sort of fresh salsa, like depending on what time of the year, like summer, I'll definitely pull as many vegetables together to get some sort of fresh salsa. And then it just depends on whatever I throw or pull out of the freezer. Um, like carnitas, I do quite a bit um carnitas with hog is fantastic or we live near the coast and so we have a lot of redfish and so i'll do fish tacos yeah i would say if you came to my house the best thing i make is some sort of tex-mex mostly because like you're just going to have like 10 things to eat from that sounds
1: very very good so so if i'm trying to do something like you just described so i'm gonna fix up either you know a fajita recipe or tacos or carnitas or something but i want to spice it up a little bit and when i say spice not literally i mean figuratively i want to make it this next level kind of mexican night uh taco tuesday We, we do our taco tuesdays here um what would that? Yeah. What would that smorgasbord tip be, or what would be, you know, that fresh salsa? What would someone do to just kind of level up their game on that front?
2: Well, step one is choose what you're eating. Um, you know, I wouldn't serve the same salsa that I serve with redfish that I would a deer. Well, actually, yeah, I would. I probably would. That's a lie.
3: Um.
1: Are there certain types of salsas that pair with certain types mm-hmm. of meat though? Is there a certain like if I'm thinking about my salsas, is there certain types that pair with venison versus something else or
2: No, I mean, I guess no, not really. I think it it depends on more how you want to serve it. Like like if I, if you were doing like a ground meat taco, I wouldn't want a roasted corn poblano. If that makes sense.
1: Because of the texture? If
2: you if you're doing a ground I don't know. It just seems, yeah. You got like a corn and it's like real bunch of little circles, and and then you got a ground meat, which is more circles. I don't want. <laughs> <laughs> I this can. is okay. I think about everything not only in terms of flavor, but in terms of texture. So like shapes and softness and crunchiness and like all those things should all like like that's what makes something really good. You know, if you have a taco and you got say. Either uh, say you got grilled fish tacos. Um, the fish are soft because they're grilled, you know, like having something like a little crunchy added into the taco, like in like a salsa with some radishes with, for that crunch. Um, you know, like all those little things start to, to play together. And if, if you've got fried fish or fried something, you know, think how good like sour cream or guacamole is because you've got like counterbalancing like textures there but um i don't know how i don't know how to answer your question what how do i take a taco to the next level is that the question yeah i mean
1: yeah would there be a salsa or i guess i'm wondering is for the average person out there listening if they want to take one suggestion from you to to improve their Mexican night or whatever their meal tonight. And they want to, since that's your specialty, is there like a homemade salsa they should consider or would it be as simple as what you just said, which was add the counterbalance of texture, which I think is a great tip.
2: I would say counterbalance the texture for sure. Because if everything in your taco is real soft and mushy, you notice it and you got a soft shell tortilla or a tortilla versus like a hard shell or something like that. Um, or even something simple like shredded lettuce adds texture. But um, I would say if you wanted to up your, your taco game, adding learning how to make a really good fresh salsa, um, either a roasted tomato salsa or a pico de gallo. And I prefer pico de gallo, something cold now that it's summer, and say you're going to grill something um, like a venison, even if it's just a steak, or like say you got a steak – And you want to just use salt, pepper, cayenne, and brown sugar. And you rub that on the steak. I would do some sort of cold salsa on the side. And I keep saying salsa. I should say pico de gallo, which is usually um, a blend of tomatoes, red onion, cilantro, um, jalapeno, lime juice, and then like you it depending on what you have on hand then you can start adding other things like I think corn is really really good in that. Um, but yeah. That's a that's a, that's one thing I make. I call it the cowboy sandwich, which is that same rub on a steak cut really really thin and then you put it on an open face sandwich and with a corn salsa on top. Oh man. It's a good. Actually, that um the first time I met my husband's parents, that's what they made me. Maybe that's why I like it so much.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. I like that idea a lot.
2: Um,
1: <laughs> speaking of of uh, of sandwiches, then now my mind's turned into burgers and I was just thinking about this whole texture thing you talked about how you want to add crunch or you want to add right. softness depending on what you're making. Um, when it comes to taking your burger game to the next level, which is another thing a lot of people are trying to do this time of year. Uh, What are some of your thoughts on that when it comes to making a better venison burger on the grill?
2: Um, You know, I season heavily on burgers just because they can get bland really quick. But I don't really like to, um, I don't get crazy and add like chopped bacon or cheese or do any of that stuff. I'm a straight up just meat and some fat. I do like fat. Um, I'll do like a 15% fat added to my, my meat mixture. My husband actually likes it a hundred percent venison, which gets a little crumbly sometimes. Um, But I like to add fat. And then I, I really do go pretty heavy, heavily on the salt and pepper on the outside of it. I don't actually, well, no, I'll do it in the mix. So like before you form the patties, I'll, I'll blend in salt and pepper to the mix um, and then make the patties. I guess there's a lot of different ways you could do it, but that's probably the best. Yeah. You really need to emulsify the meat and the fat together after you've ground it up um, so that it sticks a little better. And so adding that salt and pepper right after you, well, I guess, okay. So this is another thing I should mention. I grind all my meat before i cook
1: it yeah i remember you mentioned this last time that was uh sounded like a lot of work <laughs> yeah
2: yeah no is it no i don't think it's a, maybe so i guess that's probably why i would say that i would do it this way as opposed to somebody else who's like already has the meat ground up um do you form patties and then freeze it or you just like have the ground meat?
1: So, yeah, I've just got ground meat packaged. I, I grind it at, when I do my processing and then it's packaged and then I'll defrost it. And now I've just got a block of defrosted yeah. burger. And then what I usually personally would do is I would add an egg and I make patties. And then I would salt and pepper just before putting on the grill is what I've historically done. But now you're you're making me think maybe I should try adding it before I create the patties.
2: Yeah, kind of almost the same way. Like you would think of why a sausage flavoring is so good is because all all that seasoning's already blended in. You know, you don't season the outside of a sausage, um, although it's still wrapped in casing. But I used to do the egg method, and if I have a hundred percent ground venison, I'll add an egg. But if there's if there's enough fat, like fifteen percent, ten to fifteen percent then I'll try to make it stick together without the egg um and then you know I'm not like super picky about how it's cooked I mean I personally like it on a cast iron my husband would disagree and say it's better on the grill (laughs) 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 we argue a lot about grilling because I think he it's his territory a little bit kind of not really but I'll let them have it sometimes. Um, I don't think there's a better way. I, I I don't think that one way is necessarily better than the other. I think it just depends on what you like. You know, like having, if you've got a really good charcoal grill going, then absolutely, I think putting it directly on the grill is the way to go. But if you're using a propane, I just assume you might as well put it in a cast iron.
1: Why is that? And get is a really
2: it, good sear.
1: Just because the propane grill isn't going to get as hot or as direct to heat or or what's the thing there?
2: Well, I think charcoal produces a better flavor and I think you get like actual flavor from the flames versus the propane to me has a specific like flavor to it. You can tell the difference when it's cooked over a propane versus charcoal and I like the cast iron because you you can put oil in the bottom of it and get a solid sear across the whole burger. You know, like a flat top griddle cooking kind of mentality.
3: Yeah.
2: I don't always do it that way. I do it with my steaks sometimes with my burgers. I mean, I'm I'm kind of back and forth on it, but um I think it just depends on what what you're cooking over. If you've got a fire charcoal I think I think it's better directly on the grill
1: grates uh, what about um a mistake I used to make a lot when I first started trying to grill venison burgers and this is when I'd like just started trying to cook myself you know like in college and I was I would throw a, a patty on the grill and then I just would keep flipping it I flip it and then I'd want to check it so I check the bottom side i flip it again and then I check it and I flip it again and then I eventually read somewhere that you really don't want to do that. At least what I remember is that they said put it on the one side, let it cook something like 60 to 70% through on that side, and then flip it just to kind of sear the other side, and then you're done. Something, something like that. Um, so I only do yeah. one flip now. Is there anything to that? Am I just living off of some weird article I read a long time ago?
2: No, that's good advice. The more you flip it, the more you're – Chances are you might mess it up or like crumble or, you know, like just you, when it comes to cooking, like I used to have this habit of like the same sort of thing, like stir, stir, stir. Like you feel like you always need to mess with it because you don't want to mess it up. So you're always like messing with food and checking it and, and you, you kind of lose the. The meat's like ability to sort of char and get all that flavor and the caramelization that happens, you know. Like, so the best foods are always like, let it, like, put the meat down and leave it alone. Like, let it work its magic. Like, you messing with it isn't making it better. Yeah. You know, like you, ne- it needs time for the flames and that like mired reaction to take place and to sort of caramelize and to work. Because um, you, when you flip it, you're just kind of, I don't want to say you're baking it, but you're not creating the same crust as if you had just left it there.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, that crust same that you grill get. Marks. Yeah, that seems to be yeah. the key. Yeah, it, it adds that texture, right? I feel like sometimes yeah. I've made burger patties that don't have that grill mark or crust on the outside. And it's kind of like soft, mushy. But those really good burgers mm-hmm. are the ones that have like that firm or crunchy outside, in my, in my opinion, it seems like.
2: Yeah, yeah absolutely and that's what it is 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 you you've allowed it to sort of do its thing and create that crust on the outside and and that's sort of why i like the cast iron so much um sometimes is is you create a crust on the outside and it's like full coverage over the meat versus a grill grate you're only getting like a few lines, yeah like the grill marks um I think I think a lot of that's just personal preference, though.
3: Yeah.
1: Now, how do you go either about? Either way. Yeah. How do you go about making sure you don't overcook your burgers? What's your way of telling when they're done? Um,
2: intuition. <laughs> <laughs> um. No, you can poke and you can feel it, and you can, you know, kind of like the way you check for the doneness of a steak. You can kind of feel how it's cooked, yep. you know, um, honestly, that's probably the best answer is, is feeling it. Um, also, they start to release juices too. Um, so start to notice the juices that comes out, what it, what it looks like and how much, um, when you don't see any juice coming out anymore, you've dried it out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and then, yeah. And I honestly like mine steaks to still be a little pink in the middle, not raw by any means but yeah. um i don't I don't like a well done steak
1: and and same thing for burgers you like a medium rare burger sure, yeah
2: I don't like a well done burger, yeah, yeah,
1: so speaking of check and doneness, I didn't ask you when it comes to steaks one thing i I started I used to do like the hand the hand uh trick where you put your middle finger and your thumb together and or different Mm -hmm. different fingers with your thumb and that tells you like how a steak should feel when it's a certain Mm -hmm. so i've heard like if you put your index finger and your thumb together that's what a raw steak will feel like and if you put your middle finger and your thumb together that's and you should be poking like that medium
3: rare yeah Yeah.
1: i'm talking about poking this little pad of your hand underneath your thumb that's what i'm touching um so i heard that and then that kind of worked, but then I decided to start using a meat thermometer. So now I use a meat thermometer, and I actually try to see what the temperature is and then take it off at the right time. But one of the things I've wondered is, can you poke a piece of meat too many times? Because I've found yeah, I'm poking it, you know, I'm checking and checking and checking, and now it's three pokes in there, four pokes, and juices are coming out when I poke. Is that a bad thing I'm doing?
2: Yeah, you know... Checking it once isn't the end of the world. Maybe three times is a little bit much because each time you do that, juices leave the meat. So, you know, after you're done cooking a steak, there's that. There's always the instructions, let it rest, because juices go back into the meat tissues instead of all over your plate. So every time you poke it, you, that's how much juice is gone from the meat that won't reabsorb.
3: Yep.
1: That's a, that's what wow. I worried about.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think meat thermometers can be a good thing, especially if if you are intimidated by like cooking a steak or and you want something to be just right and you're excited about it. I think it's a good thing um, that you use it. My problem is that meat thermometers aren't really always accurate. I have two meat thermometers. And they're never saying the same thing. (laughs) Yikes. Um, And so that's like one thing that I just, I'm like, well, how much more accurate is this meat thermometer than like the years of cooking and my intuition and feeling like how, like, you know, like what's, what's actually better at this point? I mean, I think it takes time to get there, but I think a meat thermometer can be a really good thing. Um, I think what you, sh- what's probably more helpful is the first time you pull it out to check that doneness. And if you feel it and it's like mega squishy, like, you know, you can do the finger test and you're like, okay, well that's probably needs more time. Don't worry about poking it. Just stick it back in the oven for a minute or two Yeah. and then try again instead of having like to do it three times. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that does. That does. Um, another I'm pivoting here a little bit, but if I'm t- I'm thinking about all the things that I want to cook over the next week as I enjoy some nice summer weather, and I'm thinking okay, Mexican food's a great thing to eat during the summer, uh burgers of course, steaks of course. Another thing that I know a lot of people like to get after is some kind of barbecue or smoking meats if they've got a smoker. Have you do you have any thoughts on on those types of preparations? Do you guys experiment with that at all with venison or anything?
2: You know, a little bit, but not a lot. I'm actually getting ready to get a smoker soon just because I there's so many things that I want to smoke. And I haven't had a whole lot of opportunity other than out here at the ranch. We have like a, a big pit smoker, but we don't always use it because it's just so time consuming. Um, but, you know, now these days, pellet smokers make things really, really easy. But I kind of approach barbecuing, smoking very similarly to the way I would approach any other tough cut. And it's the same low and slow method. And with wild game, it can dry out really, really easily. You know, if you think about like what makes a really good barbecue so delicious, like a brisket or something like that. And you know, they create a bark and they've got these beautiful smoky flavors, but you're also sinking your teeth into like a layer of fat. You yeah. know, your pork ribs, they ha- there's a layer of fat in there that wild game doesn't have. And so that's probably the number one thing you should consider if you're going to try to like do venison ribs or or like a whole, or whatever you're going to do, like a shoulder barbecue or something like that. Um, let's just consider that that fat's not there and and one of the things that I want to do is experimenting a little more with smoking it mostly for flavor and then kind of doing the cheater method where you then either wrap it in foil and have some sort of liquid in there to finish so it doesn't dry out or transferring it to the oven or a crock pot to finish um just because I know that if you just Leave it in there to smoke the whole time, it's going to get pretty dry.
0: Yeah. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often as the case, those guys were on to something ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product
1: that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Yeah, it's funny you mention that. This, this is exactly what I've been experimenting with recently. Um, And I've done it with like a big roast off the haunch one time and then I actually use a back strap to do it once where I basically put it on my Traeger and let it run at two hundred and fifty degrees for a couple hours and then and then I I found a recipe somewhere that talked about doing this so I was just kinda of following this recipe. So what they says is used, I think, a chuck roast or something. I can't remember what it was they used. But they said to run it for three and a half hours till you reach 160 degrees. And then wrap it in foil and fill the foil with beef broth. And then finish it for mm-hmm. another hour and a half in beef broth wrapped in foil. Um, so I did that exactly with that first roast. And it got – I mean it was, it was very, very good. But it was dry on the inside still. So what I did is you take it out. You've got this – kind of looks like a brisket, and then I just sliced it up real thin, and then we ate it on sandwiches. Um, so I tried it the second time with a backstrap, and I was going to do the same kind of deal, have like a backstrap brisket style sandwich. Um, mm-hmm. And I would reduced the cooking time on the front end pre-broth significantly to try to just keep the internal temperature lower to try to get more of a medium rare finish by the time I was done for the inside to try to keep that moisture. And it was a little better, but still pretty dry. Um, So yeah, I don't know how to keep the inside juicy while getting that crust on the outside. Right now, it's still pretty darn good, but I just don't have the juiciness, which I would prefer.
2: Would you say the first temperature was 250 and then you went to 350?
1: No. So I kept the cooking temperature at 250 degrees on the Traeger the whole time, but you.
2: Oh,
3: okay. you, you
1: run it until the internal temperature of the meat was 160 degrees is what it said
3: oh, once the internals
1: okay. at 160 then you're supposed to wrap it in foil fill it with broth and then run it until it reaches 200 um, but that the that backstrap
2: was, you didn't cook it to 200 internal though
1: correct for the backstrap I nope the backstrap I took it off in the 150s
2: so like if you wanted it to be medium rare I would have taken it out at 140 yep But I think 250 is, well, it's still low enough. Um, I probably would have tried even a little lower, maybe at 200, 215, or 225. Um, And that's pretty pretty low. But um, meat, like whenever it gets heated, it's kind of like... Like if you think about a towel that's wet, so if you wanted to wring it out, you twist it to get all that like water out of a towel. Right. The same thing happens whenever a meat's being cooked; those fibers start contracting, and things kind of start to um, to like lose all of its moisture. And that happens at a hundred. It starts happening at like 188 degrees. And so usually, like when I think about low cooking, like in the 225 range is a good number, but I think um, smoking is a really dry heat method. Even though you that first half, it's still like being a dry heat. Um, How long? I mean, I think it was probably just too long of a dry heat. Yeah. And also another thing is, did you brine it beforehand? No brine. Put a rub on
1: it. I just I put a rub on it.
2: That'll make a huge. That'll make a really big difference any Any kind of rub or a brine beforehand will will make a world of difference
1: so what I did is i did i did a rub which so I, I just put olive oil on the piece of meat and then on top of the i used a rub of salt pepper uh, cayenne pepper and brown sugar I think was what I used mixed all that up and then applied that as a rub on the outside and um and yeah, so that gives me the crust. But, but the brine, I mm-hmm. guess, When you, you're you saying it's like a saltwater brine?
2: Yep, just like a turkey.
1: Interesting. I've never <laughs> um, done that and for it's Venice. it's a really,
2: weird thing to think about with a backstrap. And I, I'll do um, kind of the same approach, but I do it with the sous vide. Um, but at 24 hours ahead, I just rub the whole thing with salt and pepper. Like a generous rub with salt and pepper, and I just leave it alone inside my fridge for at least 24 hours um and you can soak it in a a thing of water if you want but i think it's just as effective to just rub it with salt and pepper so like if you have your favorite rub or whatever you want to like barbecue with just use that
1: just well ahead of time like
2: 24 yeah yeah
3: okay
2: you'll you'll notice a huge difference i'll be honest i haven't i I don't have a pellet grill, so I like haven't really messed around with some of those things I'll be getting one soon and I'll, I'll better be able to tell you how to make that better. But off my first thought, um, I think the front end with the dry cooking is too much, Yeah. too long or or something.
1: Yeah. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep messing with it because it's, it's really good. I mean, you, you, it's it's darn good as it is the flavoring and stuff it's just the the thing to put it over the top to just to just drop drop your jaw kind of good would be to get those cuts extra moist so i'm gonna keep playing with it because it's uh i'm a fan of it now here's something
2: yeah the brine will help
1: yeah here's something kind of the total opposite of that it's a sandwich but it's kind of like your simplest kind of sandwich when i grew up what my grandma called a barbecue sandwich was just essentially like a sloppy Joe. It was just ground meat, and I think she put mm-hmm. brown sugar and ketchup and mustard and stirred it all up and cooked that. And that was this, and onions. And this was like, for whatever reason, the thing. We loved it growing up. Um, uh-huh. I saw you took a stab at making a fancy sloppy Joe. I think we talked about this.
2: Fancy sloppy Joe? Well,
1: didn't you try to like. <laughs> Didn't you try to do like an m- improved version of a sloppy joe? I feel like that you were trying to. No,
2: I mean the the regular old sloppy joe. I think.
1: Well then, Isn't what's nice? I, I I haven't tried your recipe yet, but tell me tell me <laughs> how to make a good sloppy joe then, because that's a good summer sandwich if you want something like that.
2: So the way I approached the sloppy joe thing was okay. I I went through dozens of traditional sloppy joe recipes and I kept seeing the same theme over and over. And so what I translate those ingredients to be is is a convenient way to make a barbecue sauce. You know, the ketchup and all that. And so I basically just broke it down and simplified it, but because I'm from Texas and barbecue is a, a bit of a religion around here, I just sort of imparted my my Texas barbecue influence on that. And so I don't have a barbecue sauce in in that. No, my sloppy joe does have ketchup in it. I did make it like a barbecue sauce. I I do so many recipes. I can't always remember what I did exactly. (laughs) Um, No, I basically broke it down and made like a barbecue sauce with it. But the difference between like mine and maybe what you had is I have... A lot of black pepper and like a pinch of cumin. The cumin is kind of what makes it a little Texan, um probably what you're not used to in the in the seasonings of of finding in a sloppy Joe recipe. but it to me, it tastes kind of kind of like the barbecue flavor that i I grew up eating and that we eat around here. Um, it's it's definitely a peppery, ketchupy, sugary ground meat, concoctions.
1: (laughs) It's that cumin's kind of the the taco, traditional taco seasoning kind of flavor, right? If if we're trying to like relate this to someone. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just a hint. It's not something that I think you necessarily know is there when you try it, but it's, it's you you know something's different, but you're not really sure how to put your finger on it. Yeah. And it's, to me, it's um, it's very very Texan.
1: What have we missed if if we're talking summer venison or other wild game? Is there something that's just like a screaming miss that you would be making over the coming months that we've got to touch on for people? Um, or do you feel like we've covered kind of the the mainstays?
2: I think those are the main things. Um... I think those are the main things unless you want to add in like camping. You know, like a
1: Ooh, do you have some camp some camp meal ideas?
2: Yeah, I my favorite thing to cook is fish, which probably sounds like the worst thing you'd want to eat while camping, but um if you're truck camping or maybe you're camping by the beach or by the river and you're catching fish, cooking it over the open fire is like the best camp food for me. I just I just love it. And I think part of that comes from living near the coast, we have redfish. And so when you fillet those out, um, you can eat them on the half shell, which basically means you keep the scales and the skin on when you fillet them and that becomes its own cooking vessel. So you basically just put it right on the grill grate or whatever grate over a fire. Um, That to me is like my absolute favorite camp meal. And I've gotten to the habit now, my favorite way to like prepare it besides just salt and pepper is I start bringing along pickle jars (laughs) because acidity just pairs so well with everything. And so um, I just bring little jars of different types of pickles. I've I've been pickling stuff from my garden. And then when you eat it, you pour that cold pickling over it and it's just so good.
1: So, Hold on. You're pouring pickle juice on your fish fillets?
2: Not like, not like the juice necessarily. Like, um, like I'll do like the last one I did was a pickled relish with like chopped green beans, onions, and jalapenos pickle. And so I just take the relish out and pour that over. But if you have like sort of that like gardenia sort of pickling stuff or like the relish or just, just pickled peppers or pickled um pickles, um, uh, not necessarily the juice, but just like the actual pickle gotcha. pickling ingredient,
1: okay, now, doing it that half shell method, um you're doing it with redfish, I'm assuming you do the same thing with a bass or a trout or whatever you're catching wherever you live.
2: um it's a little different you you know they so what makes the redfish so special about the half shell thing? is you keep the scales on because the scales are really hard. Like they're, I don't know, have you ever had redfish before? I have not. Okay, their scales are like mega hard versus like, you know, any other fish, you could take a bottle cap and scale it. Yeah, A redfish, is you just cannot scale it. I mean, you can, but you like, it's a real pain to scale a redfish. So you keep it all on there and that's what protects it and sort of keeps keeps the skin and everything together and it basically hardens on the grill. Um, and so other fish, if you wanted to do it that route, I would just cook it whole. So like you, you would go ahead and scale, like I do this with speckled trout. I'll scale it and then make some slash marks and sometimes I'll stuff it with herbs or lemon and then put oil it really really well and put that directly on the grill the the whole fish
1: and then you just open it up and open it up and pull out some delicious flaky meat
2: yeah i mean after it's cooked the filet just comes right off so easily
1: that sounds pretty good that sounds very good. It's uh, it's approaching, not quite approaching dinner time, but enough that I'm getting hungry as we talk about all this stuff over here. So I know
2: I haven't had lunch yet. <laughs> oh,
1: jeez, you gotta get to that, Daniel. I gotta let you go. I know. <laughs> um, so okay, so this is this is good. I feel like I'm armed with some new ideas here for the coming months. Um, one thing we haven't talked about, and I know you've experimented with some of these things, and I haven't got to try them yet. our our new meat eater spices. Are there any that you uh, can recommend for some of these summer dishes we've been talking about that we could, we could try?
2: Yeah. You know, all the barbecue ones are good. I'll say if you're going to go with the barbecue ones, they're sweet. So be careful on the grill with really high heat because you don't want it to burn, but they're really, really good. So like if you're doing something on a low temperature, like a pellet grill, um, they're they're perfect. I can't remember the names of them, but we have two barbecue flavored.
1: Yeah, there's the beaver trapper uh, rub. barbecue rub.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What's the other one?
1: Then there's a drunken squirrel hickory bourbon rub. Uh,
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those two. Yeah. Um I think the mastodon is a great one because it's so textural. Um I just think grilling there's just something about having a really textural rub. Um, if you're going to do a steak, like if you wanted to go that route, I think it's a really, really good one. And I've actually found that the mastodon works really well with fish, hmm. <laughs> which sounds kind of weird, but, um, I've been playing with that. Um, I got some, hal- I was in Oregon earlier in the year and I got some halibut and, um, I was doing some searing with that and that rub was just fantastic with it. Excellent. But, um, what else?
1: Yeah. Well, we've got plenty of cooking ideas and options for all of us to get to now. So, uh it's funny right now, you know, we're under quarantine in some certain ways. We're starting to come out of it now up here in Michigan, but we've been locked down for a long time. And then I also have got a newborn kid. So with two little kids and lockdown, my wife and I have felt just like claustrophobic, just like stuck with nothing <laughs> interesting to do in our lives anymore. And so the one thing that has been like the spice it up factor has been trying new recipes. We've been trying a bunch of different things. Um, and, and just that, change of pace is such a nice thing to add to your day-to-day existence that i think this summer Mm -hmm. i want to take this conversation we had today and just use this to launch my summer into the summer of better wild game food at the kenyan household so thank you for helping kickstart us on that danielle
2: you're welcome i hope i had some helpful tips
1: definitely definitely did where where can people find all your recipes and all sorts of good stuff and follow along with what you got going on
2: so, most of everything you'll find is on the mediator website, um, definitely all the wild game stuff, and I'm pretty active on social media so uh, my my Instagram handle, which is Danielle Pruitt
1: perfect, okay, well, good stuff, Danielle. <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate taking time to do this.
2: Thank you. Have a good one.
1: you too, and that's gonna do it for us today. So thank you so much for tuning in. Hopefully, this one got you armed with some new ideas for the upcoming uh, meals you're planning this coming weekend or week or vacation, whatever it is. And if you want to get more from Danielle, make sure to check out the meat eater website. That's the meat eater.com for all her recipes, as well as a whole lot more uh, from other contributors from the meat eater website to lots of good food ideas there. So check it out. And until next time, thanks for listening and stay wired to hunt. at your local auto parts store, or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.